You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Joining us tonight is Ralph White, co-founder of the New York Open Center, America's leading urban institution of holistic learning, where his current role is creative director. The Open Center receives almost 60,000 visits annually from participants in its year-round programs and has presented the major writers and speakers in the fields of wellness, social, ecological change, inner development, world spiritual traditions, art and creativity for over 30 years. Now, he is an international speaker of spirituality, consciousness, the history of the Western tradition, and has edited and contributed to several books, including The Rosicrucian Enlightenment Revisited. He has made numerous appearances on radio and TV, both in the United States and internationally, and he currently hosts a program on WBAI-FM radio in New York City, where he has interviewed many of the major figures in Holistic World and numerous scholars in the fields of multicultural mysticism and ecology. He's joining us tonight to talk about his new memoir called The Jeweled Highway, On the Quest for a Life of Meaning, published by Divine Arts Press. Now, we had the great privilege of touring the most impressive New York Open Center with Walter Beebe, and who is the chairman, and our friends Dorian and Defrey Bergen, as well as Ralph, and Ralph White, that is, of course. Welcome to 21st Century Radio, Ralph. Well, my pleasure. Great to be here. Delighted to be on the show. Ralph, do uh, you have any comments on what our president has just said? Well, I agree with him. I think it was, uh, he's, he's coming from, uh, from my point of view from a very wise place. Yeah. We certainly cannot uh, equate Muslims and Islam with terrorism. <clears throat> it is a pathological dimension and perversion of... Uh, the many noble and beautiful truths and wisdoms within Islam. And uh, we have to, I, I, I support his, uh, his viewpoint that uh, this is what makes America great. We're a multicultural society. We're committed to human freedom. There should be no kind of tests on admission to the country. And that uh, we've got to remember there's, all, there's plenty of Muslims who are our neighbors, our friends, and even are in the, uh, in the military as well. Mm-hmm. So I think he took the wise position there, and I think going around the to the place of demonizing Muslims is actually handing a big a big victory to Daesh or ISIL or whatever we've had to call those unfortunate people. Do you think that the his opposition in this country is in the GOP, do you think that they're going to uh, listen to what he has to say or do anything different? No, I, uh, sadly, I doubt it. I mean, I don't think we're living in a, I don't think this will go down as a glorious period in the history of the Republican Party. I think it's, uh, it's hard to believe this is the same party that brought us Abraham Lincoln. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I, I'm sad to say that there is, I, I think, I think this is a, we've been stuck in a kind of nadir of, uh, of prejudice and demagoguery and uh, finger-pointing and failure to respond to gun control legislation and all of this. So, no, I think he's, he has, since the moment he became president, faced a tremendously difficult situation with the highly obstreperous uh, opposition party. And I just hope that something like this uh, 
will bring people to their senses more rather than posturing about what a war we're in or we're in and you know, the kind of aggressive negative stance we need to take towards it. And Muslims, this is dangerous nonsense. Sorry, so uh, I hope that people in the Republican Party will wake up to that. And uh, I, I really support where Obama came from. Well, all of my friends, unfortunately, in the Republican Party, uh, uh, they, they're pretty disturbed about all of this that's been going on. And I mean in, a pos in, a, in the sense of the support of the president. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, there are others, as you well know, that are going to be negative no matter what. So that's uh, yeah. let's get on with what we got to do tonight. Okay. Okay. Now, my wife, Sahara, and I founded the Ruska Mansion Holistic Health Care Center in Baltimore in 84 on what was on top of the foundation of the AUM Esoteric Study Center that we founded in 69. That continues today, of course. Now, have you spent your life coordinating holistic centers worldwide? Tell us your thoughts on the emergence of the worldwide network of holistic centers. Well, Dr. Bob, my view is that um, this we need this. We need a positive vision for the future of humanity and the future of the, the Earth more than ever in these difficult times when terrorist attacks are appearing and we don't know where the next one will come from, etc. Uh, many people say to me that they're progressively disturbed, progressively more anxious about this. I think the real counterforce to this is creating a, a healthy, holistic, and ecological vision for the future of the Earth. Actually, as I say at the end of my book, I, I don't think that the present narrative, the predominant narrative in the Western world of uh, consumerism and materialism, um, really is, uh, is sufficiently compelling, especially for young people. It's an empty world uh, for a lot of young people. They don't feel a sense of meaning. Um, that's why I subtitled my book On the Quest for a Life of Meaning. I, but there's plenty of meaning to be found once you ally your being with the necessary renewal of our culture into a more holistic and ecological direction. I mean, people like you and me who've been involved in this for uh, decades, we know that it's been remarkable the way, uh, when I look back on the founding of the Open Center in 1984, all of these ideas were considered distinctly peripheral. They were marginal. They were alternative medicine, etc., was dismissed as snake oil in the New York Times. Meditation was considered a fancy word for sleep, etc. Yoga was considered something bizarre. And uh, now, of course, we see these things everywhere. Natural foods, organic agriculture, a sustainable approach to sustainable and renewable energy sources. So I think we've seen these, this holistic and ecological perspective make its way closer and closer to the heart of the culture. It remains a story that the mainstream media tends to ignore. It's, it's happening so slowly. It's an evolution rather than a revolution that people tend not to see it. But I think it provides, I do think the, the holistic and ecological vision for the future provides a really compelling narrative, and we need that to attract young people away from the seductions of things like terrorism and fundamentalism and so on. Indeed. Yeah, you know, creating a center in New York City 30 years ago when the conventional wisdom was that New York was the real world where such matters would, wouldn't, well, they wouldn't thrive. But you've had 300,000 attendees at least later who can say that they were really wrong. And why do you think a spiritual retreat uh, thrive 
uh, in the heart of Manhattan. Well, because I think there's there's been a profound yearning in the culture and among hundreds of thousands of people for uh, a deeper connection to their own souls, their own spiritual life, but in a non-sectarian, eclectic, multicultural way. So the Open Center has never preached any one particular spiritual path. We've always been open to the whole spectrum of them. And, um, and because I think our culture has just reached a dead end. I remember some of the first conferences that, I, that we did. The first one was on the destruction of the rainforest back in 1984-85 with the Rainforest Action Network. I mean, at that time, that was considered, nobody took that seriously, and now it's ubiquitous. So I think we had, people had begun to sense that our culture has to change. You know, as we would remember from the 60s and 70s, there was a massive awakening of interest in deeper spiritual matters. It didn't just disappear. People who came out of that time, a lot of them didn't just disappear into some kind of addiction or whatever. We got involved in creating alternatives. And that's what this whole holistic movement has been about. So I think the Open Center has attracted such a large number of people over the years and the decades simply because people are wanting it. You know, they mm -hmm. were looking for multiple approaches to contemplation, meditation, esoteric spirituality. They were looking for different avenues towards personal growth, uh, depth psychology, wherever it might be. You know, they were looking for new ways to release creativity. And, of course, in relationship to health, that's, you know, the, the, the approach to holistic health pioneers in many ways the, the many other aspects of the holistic worldview. But uh, there's just generally been a sense that when we think that nutrition has been so marginalized, I've talked to oh, people wow. who graduated from Ivy League medical schools, and in uh, whatever it was, four or five years, they only had a matter of three hours devoted to nutrition. I think that uh, I think these are all indicators of the fact that we, our culture was in need of a profound shift back towards wholeness and to a more harmonious relationship to the planet and to a deeper connection to the individual, the individual's soul and spirit. And so I think that's by making the Open Center available to people in New York, that has, they have responded to its presence and they've been drawn to it because it's, it's offered programs, and this has been part of our strategy from day one, is to offer programs that have substance, depth, and meaning. You know, we've tried to steer clear of the less grounded material around this and to do stuff that is really solid, serious, substantive, and will attract a, a steady audience. So, yeah, I'd say that's what it was. Wow. Well, it didn't happen overnight, so it happened along your journey on this planet, like I guess you would say, according to Joseph Campbell and others, that you went on a spiritual journey. Yes. Yes, that's right. You'd, you'd, you'd say I went on. I, mean, I wasn't necessarily conscious of it or didn't necessarily conceive of it that way when I was young. I was, you know, I was young. I was adventurous. I was in search of the miraculous. I wanted to head out beyond the beyond to discover what was out there beyond just the surface of life. And, uh, yes, that led me to do many things. It led to both an inner exploration and an outer explanation geographically and physically. So, uh, yeah, I've done both of those. Just like as above, so below, inner and outer. Yeah. Uh, tell us about that personal journey from a childhood in Wales to an alienated, alienated teenager in the gritty north of England in the 60s to hitchhiking to Machu Picchu on the quest for meaning. Now, 
I got to tell you, I have never enjoyed any book as much as this one. Are you serious? Wow. Well, that's great. That's so, that's so lovely to hear. I'm delighted. I'm really thrilled. Well, I'm glad you're stuff. delighted, but it was a hell of a great journey and a, <laughs> an excellent read because what you did was you, you went to, you did a lot of things that I wanted to do, but <laughs> my karma, <laughs> the karma that I chose for this particular lifetime uh, set me down here. And, and I, you know, I, I, I live in a, a city and a state that, that really, I would say we're maybe a decade behind California, no more longer than that, maybe 15 years behind California and, and elsewhere in the world. And that I pay, I, obviously, as you know, when you choose your incarnation, you choose how, which way you want to go. You choose which way from the standpoint, do you want to really uh, uh, do it as quickly as you can or do you want to take it easy? Uh, and I don't think you took it easy. You really got in there and did it. And we're going to cover a lot of that in a few minutes. Uh, you were responding to a request from the R. Oh, nope. Oh, I'm being told we need to take a break, and we will do that. I will pay attention to my boss. Our guest is Ralph White, co-founder of New York's Open Center, author of The Jeweled Highway, on the quest for a life of meaning. What a title. Listen to that. The quest for a life of meaning. What could be more important than a life of meaning? Well, TV is almost that important, right? Okay. <laughs> right. The Divine Arts Media in 2015. Find it on the web at ralphwhite.net. Or click the link on the front page of 21stCenturyRadio.com. Hello there. This is George Martin, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. You know, I think that religion, um, flying saucers, um, kinetic energy, transportation, um, ghosts, paranormal experiences, all these are probably tied up in some form. Thank you, Uncle George. I hope Uncle George is doing well. Maybe he's listening tonight. Yep, he could be. Ah, oh, yes. Our guest, of course, is Ralph White, co-founder of New York's Open Center and author of The Jeweled Highway. What a book. Boy, when you start reading this book, you're not going to put it down. You really won't. You're going to dislike having to stop reading it if you, you know, fall asleep or something like that. I've got... I had such a wonderful time with this. Even with the kind of crazy schedule I had, I made sure I read every page. I'm going to hold this book up to the microphone. Take a look at this. See the see, see it see it Ralph? You see all these pages I'm holding up here? <laughs> There's not a single page. It's not written all over. This has become my encyclopedia of your book. Wow. Well, uh, I'm going to send you a photograph of some of these uh, because well, <laughs> there are multiple levels. You have all kinds of multiple levels of meaning all throughout this work, and that's why it makes it so exciting for me. Now, I, I really got too excited and moved away from that question there on your personal journey from childhood in, in Wales because that was an important story. Let's go. Let's uh, touch on that. Yeah, well, you know, I was born in uh, in 49, actually, so I grew up in austerity Britain. Uh, first of all, in Cardiff, the capital of Wales, and it was, you know, it was, it was still a, a very grey world playing in bomb sites. Uh, it was not a world where it permeated by an obvious spirituality. You know, both my father and grandfather were in the thick of the first and, the, and then the second world war. Um, it was, uh, what should we say, it was a poor time. Should we say it was physically poor? 
Um, I did then, but later on we moved from the just sort of working class row houses that you would know from Baltimore. They're very similar in South Wales. Um, we moved to the north of uh, north of Wales, uh, to the coast, to a lovely little town called Penryn Bay on the Irish Sea, and uh, that was a. That I was very fortunate because that really connected in retrospect, because I didn't have the, these kinds of terms at the time, but in retrospect, I can see that opened a door to me to the spiritual and the eternal. For me, it was wandering those uh, tidal pools, just listening to the rhythmic crash of the sea, uh, gazing out on the little paddle steamers heading out to the Isle of Man, the snow-capped mountains of Snowdonia, visible through our kitchen window that were uh, that was a beautiful time for me and i'm very grateful that uh my destiny involved five years up there uh as a boy in north wales but then as a result of my father's job changing we moved uh to the industrial north of england <laughs> i know you're a big fan of the beatles and so you know it it's, it remains one of the most remarkable things in uh I think in the 20th century that these four guys could come out of such an unpromising environment. And it's, it was similar to the one that I grew up in. It was just those northern industrial towns. Of course, Liverpool was a port, had a bit, was a bit was more cosmopolitan. I spent my teenage years in a town called Huddersfield in Yorkshire in the, the Pennine foothills of the north of England. In those days, it was a grim, grimy. The whole town was literally jet black. It was covered in soot. You know, 150 years' worth of soot. This is one of the places the Industrial Revolution started. It is actually the home of the Luddites, the original Luddites. And um, it was that's, it's up there, the north of England. It's one of the world's original and oldest working classes. That's the original proletariat. That's where Marx thought that the revolution would happen. And it was, it was a very difficult transition for me as a boy, you know, to go from... Uh, the beauty of the sea and the mountains and uh, just uh, something lyrical in the quality of Welsh culture to uh, a very hard-headed, you know, a Yorkshireman called a spade a spade. It was, a, it, it was just a hard, gritty, grimy reality without a lot of joy in it, uh, a lot of oppression, a certain amount of, you know, physical violence. There was a lot of, uh, people felt very suppressed in that kind of world. But then, of course, there was something beautiful that came blasting through that was the saving grace that got me through my teenage years, and that was the incredible rock and roll music that oh, came out. Of it, from Liverpool, from Manchester, from the animals up in Newcastle. You know, that, that northern music scene uh, was a fabulous force of uh, vitality and freedom. So I was, uh, that was uh, absolutely fabulous for me. I mean, my it felt like a dead-end world, though. It, was, it, it felt very claustrophobic. Um, I, I just remember as a teenager, you know, I'd come back uh, home in the evenings, and there was a wonderful British television series called The Great War that portrayed the First World War up close, based upon genuine archival footage. And I, it just gave me a tremendous sense of the fundamental futility of the human condition, these horrible wars, these mass murders, the Holocaust, etc. I mean, you're going, you know, how could there be some kind of deeper order to the world? How could there be some deeper spiritual reality within all of this when there's been so much uh, evil 
and horror in the 20th century. And so for me, I was a sort of angry teenage existentialist. You know, I kept going by rock and roll, etc., but not somebody really with a spiritual worldview, I would say. That had to come to me later, and it really came through some of the, the explosions then of consciousness in the later 60s, and eventually when I went to university, I went to a place called the University of Sussex, which isn't widely known in America, but in the 60s, it was the place in Britain, it was the hip place, and it, and it was, it was down in Brighton, it was, there was a lot going on, it was a very expansive experience for me, that's what began to open up my uh, my mind. You know, I, nobody from my family had been to university before. So for me, that was a big uh, opening to freedom, to learning, to a more cosmopolitan culture. And, um, and then it was really when I came to America as a graduate student, because I'd done a degree in American studies in Britain, it was then that things really began to change for me when I answered an ad for a co-driver down uh, Route 66 uh, to go from Chicago to L.A. I was in graduate school in Chicago. And uh, that's what, it was going down the deserts to the deserts of New Mexico and Arizona, the silence, uh, the, the vast starlit skies, the mazes, the buttes. I remember hearing the pure sound of silence um, on the site of some 14th century Native American ruins in the Painted Desert. I mean, that for me was a huge spiritual opening. You know, perhaps some, I was 21 years old. Some people would suggest that was a, there's a certain inner maturing of the soul that happens at that age. But whatever it was, for me at the age of 21, going down that road um, was a turning point in my life, really, I have to say. It was a fabulous experience. And, of course, it wasn't. A, it was helped by the fact that we were listening to George Harrison's My Sweet Lord oh, all the way down gotcha. Route 66. And yeah. then, you know, All Things Must Pass came out when we got down to Tucson. So uh, uh, between the music, the beautiful natural environment, uh, the inner maturation that I think was happening in my own spirit and soul, they all came together to create a big spiritual opening for me. And I began to realize that some of the more negative views I had held really derived from the fact that I had closed myself off to the world out of a sense of self-protection and disappointment, etc. Mm -hmm. And that really it was up to me if I opened myself to the world again, then it was an extraordinary and beautiful universe out there. But I had to go to New Mexico and Arizona to discover that, really. And so having had these powerful experiences, um, I then uh, felt that I really I needed to devote myself full-time to the exploration of mystical, spiritual, and esoteric truth. But if these experiences were real and they felt overwhelmingly real, although there was not much out there in the culture that validated them, then, then nothing could be more important than exploring them. And so that's when I decided to, to head out to the West Coast. For me, that was... Vancouver, it was British Columbia, and really devote myself to exploring whether those experiences were real and substantive. And of course, the, the more I looked, the more I see that there was a literature out there, a very significant literature referring to these experiences. It's just that it wasn't in general part of the academic body of knowledge. But I began to go through an experience where books would, if not literally, fall off fall off a shelf, they'd be sticking out from a shelf right in front of me, and I picked them up. I remember Radha Krishna's great book 
on uh, Eastern religions and Western philosophy. And I remember reading the first 50 or so pages of that and just feeling this describes exactly what I just experienced in the desert. And so then it became a process of progressive inner conviction, just, you know, finding Carl Jung's work. That was huge for oh, me in terms of uh, bringing together the skeptical, rational, intellectual side of me with the spiritual side and with his concepts, things like the collective unconscious, archetypes, and so on. Uh, I began the whole notion of individuation, becoming truly who we are, developing a true self with a capital S. Yeah. Um, the, you know, these were the things that really uh, began to make sense of the spiritual and the mystical for me and, and set me off on this life journey. You were determined to get the Machu Picchu, isn't that correct? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You well, sure were. <laughs> I mean, sure were. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, in those days, it was 1972 when uh, I, I got the idea to go to I was just sitting one night in Vancouver, actually, watching a TV show, and suddenly a picture of Machu Picchu came on. And that today, everybody knows Machu Picchu, but 40-odd years ago, they certainly didn't. And I looked at it, and I thought, my God, look at that. Well, there was such a sense of mystery and awe and beauty about it. I just had an immediate intuitive prompting, I want to go. I've got to go. You know, I'd started hitchhiking when I was 16 because it was my path to freedom. I can still remember that rush of exhilaration today. They'd say a Kundalini rush up the spine of freedom when the first truck stopped. But, uh, yes, I wanted to stick out my thumb and keep on going to the end of the road. And I also wanted to go in search of the miraculous. And Machu Picchu was such a symbol of mystery and beauty um, and something hidden. You know, it was a symbol of there being a deeper sense a deeper reality within the world than what was normally considered. And, um, and so, yes, that's what set me off to get to Machu Picchu. I got a 2,000-mile ride to Mexico and then basically hitched from there, took a little flight over Panama where there's no road. And, uh, and it took me six months to get there. But when I got there, it really it was very much worthwhile. I did have a profound experience there and up in Lake Titicaca. And as you noted, uh, you said it was a, a taste of inner experience that has remained with you all your life. Well, yes, absolutely. You know, I'm quoting him on page 54. As a matter of fact, we're getting ready for another break. Darn it. But when, when we return, we, are need, we need to go uh, take a look at that uh, Oracle of Tibet. Now, this is a story... Man, uh, well, uh, when we get back, we'll talk about it. But I got to tell you, I, I don't know how you did it. I don't know how you did it. You walked hundreds of miles through territory that was certainly not safe. That's correct, isn't it? Yes, yes it is yes. correct. Yeah. All right, I, I didn't exaggerate. No, no, no now, we'll it's, be, <laughs> it's hard to exaggerate any of that. <laughs> we'll be back with Ralph White, co-founder of New York's Open Center and author of the jeweled highway on the quest for a life of meaning you got to buy this book I'll, I'll give you a good deal on it when we come back we'll talk about that and you can also find him on the web at ralphwhite.net or click the link on the front page at 21st century radio.com hi this is Janie hendrix sister of jimmy hendrix and you're listening to 21st century radio with dr bob hieronymus Oh, yes, there's Brother Jimmy. Love comes shining over the mountains. And boy, we have a guy on the, on the air tonight, Ralph White, that climbed a few 
mountains. <laughs> a few mountains. One mountain after another. Jeez, oh whiz. And as a matter of fact, he mentions uh, on page 20, oh, well, thank God for rock and roll. Sussex was fortunate to have Jimi Hendrix. Yep, yep. Good man he was. Yes, and um, such a different person than most people would have ever thought. But the media did such a lousy job in trying to find out what he was all about. And I know he was not happy about that. Now, okay. You were responding to a request from the Oracle of Tibet to take a contraband material, con to take contraband material into Tibet at the time of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Whoa! Uh, just what an honor! What an honor for the, them to ask you to do this. But what you had to go through was a whole life of, uh, well, a little bit of stress. Yes. Hey, have you have you ever had your pulse taken to? Doing something like that, your stress must have been over 250. Sorry, what was that, Bob? I missed, I missed the last thing you said. There. Oh, no, that's, that's missed the whole thing anyway. It, it was just that uh, you must have had so much stress. Uh, uh, oh, that, yeah. That yeah, it yeah. probably was about like 250 over 300 or something like that. Who knows uh, what it was. Tell us about this experience. How in the world did this come about? What an honor. And tell us what you, your well, job was. Well, it came about because I, I spent a month. This was back in 1989. Um, I spent a month in the monastery of the State Oracle, the Nechung Monastery in Dharamsala, India, which is the home of the Dalai Lama. Um, it's, not, it's a working monastery. It's not visited by many Westerners. And its main function is to serve as an oracle. It's, it's actually the world's last surviving political oracle that I'm aware of in that uh, what happens is that a few times a year, the monks actually go through a very careful, meticulous five-day ritual in which they invoke Peha Gyalpo, the protective deity of Tibet and the Dalai Lama. And uh, at the end of that process, one of the monks goes into a state of trance, you would say, is dressed as, as the protective deity and then speaks. He dances and he speaks to the Kashag, the parliament, and to the Dalai Lama himself. And I happened to be there at the monastery when they were doing the annual invocation. And by the time we got to the second day, the drums, you know, it was the drums, those great, the great blasts on those huge 15-foot-long Tibetan trumpets, the cymbals, everything had become increasingly shamanic. And in fact, this does date from the pre-Buddhist era in Tibet, the, the time of the Pern religion. Uh, anyway, it became very, I was just drawn to it, very deeply drawn to it. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd hear the Tibetan monks doing that deep bass, you know, I, 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 you know the, the different chanting they do and the, the trumpets and the cymbals. I did, and I, I was drawn to it, so I asked if I could join them. So I just sat quietly at the back in the temple and meditated for three mornings while they did this. Then at the end of, towards the end of the month um, that I was in the monastery, uh, one day the senior monk came to visit me, and using a translator, a young monk who was a friend of mine, uh, he began to tell me the whole story of what had happened with the Nechung Monastery in Tibet. Uh, you know, because of its political role, the monk serving as the vehicle for the oracle was very much sought after by the Chinese communists and was burned in effigy and so on. And the senior monk and, and the monk serving as the vehicle had only managed to get out just by the skin of their teeth. 
and um, it was you could still see what well, he was a very composed and dignified man, but you could still see the profound what should we say anger perhaps or the pro- the profound horror that still lived within it in him of the desecration of that beautiful old uh, Tibetan culture. Anyway, he he came to me and he basically said, look, uh, we've been waiting for the right person to take some material into uh, our sister center in Lhasa. Remember, this is 25 years ago, so it's a long time ago, 26 years ago maybe. So, uh, and then he uh, he said they felt I was that right person, uh, that it needed to be a Westerner, and that um, they had something they would like me to take. And uh, he said that if, they, if I was willing to do it, they would put me under the protection of the oracle, uh, the protector, Chogyam, the Nechung Chogyam, Peha Gyalpo. And, uh, you know, I've always been a lover of Tibet and the Tibetan people ever since I was a boy. I've always felt that connection to Tibet. Um, and so uh, I agreed. And... Uh, it looked like I would just have to take my chances for the first flight of the year from uh, Kathmandu to Lhasa, but that was closed because it was the anniversary, it was the 30th anniversary of the uprising against the Dalai Lama that had led to his flight in 1959. This is 1989. And so there were de- riots in Tibet, people were being murdered, all borders were closed, and all foreigners were expelled from the country. So it looked <clears throat> like it would be impossible to go in. And then I met somebody in Kathmandu. I met somebody who told me about a route into eastern Tibet last done by um, an Austrian-American explorer called Joseph Rock in the 1920s. He wrote a, a series of articles for National Geographic called Journey to the Land of the Yellow Lama. And he said, why don't you try this route in through mm. eastern Tibet? We think of Tibet, we tend to think of Lhasa or Shigatse or Mount Kailash to the west. Eastern Tibet is a different world. Eastern Tibet is the world of the campers, of the wild Tibetan cowboy warriors with their cowboy hats. All the men have really long hair. They all have earrings and big ornaments. They, they all carry swords. Many of them have guns and are crack shots. And uh, they all have these big earrings. I always remember their line, a man without an earring will be reborn as a donkey. So, <laughs> um, so, I, uh, so I, it's, I tell the story of what it actually took to get in there during that time and to cross those mountains. Um, and in fact, I met the guy who told me about this years ago, the guy who gave me that story into Tibet uh, about Joseph Rock's journeys. And he told me that... As far as he knows, to this day, nobody else has ever done that route into eastern Tibet, which is a world of huge valleys. Just, it's not a flat plateau. Just the, the Tibetans call that area four rivers, six ranges, because four of the great rivers that water the whole of Asia rise and pour through a narrow area. So it's huge ma- mountains, profound valleys, and an amazing culture that is very different from what we think of when we think of as Tibetans. So, so really, it's the story of taking this material. Um, I have to be non-specific about some of these things uh, into uh, into this realm. And of course, when I set off, I didn't know that Tiananmen Square would happen. I could see, you know, there were demonstrations in the streets of Lijiang where I was, but you didn't know which way it was going to go. But the monsoon was coming in; the mountains were going to become impassable to the the Lama Kingdom of Muli. It's what it, you know, that's the area it was called. Um, it was part of the eastern, the southeast corner of old Tibet, 
Um, now it's considered a Tibetan autonomous province. But uh, it was, uh, yeah, it's the story of entering into that world and then making my way further west. And only later when I got out after a month in this forbidden land did I discover that the Tiananmen Square had actually happened. And then my concern was that I might be the only Westerner left in China. I didn't know. That would have been a difficult thing to explain. But, yes, it was, it was intense. It was nerve-wracking. Many times I wondered what the hell I was doing, but I felt I'd made a commitment. It was important. It was a cause I believed in. And so it's, that's the story. Yeah. Well, no wonder uh, no one else probably has done that. You, you've really uh, oversimplified <laughs> the problems you had there. I mean, you <laughs> yeah, were walking well, like several hundred miles. Is that right? Uh, yeah, well, sure. Several hundred I mean, miles? Over, yeah. over intense mountains at high altitudes uh, with very little in the way of food or water, yeah. And, and, and fortunately, you, when things really got bad, every now and then somebody would just come along and, and help you out one way or the other. Well, yeah. So, you know, there's a certain time when I felt I'd really <clears throat> hit a dead end in the heart of some remote valley in the eastern Himalayas where it looked like the the path I was on just uh, hit an absolute mountain wall, just a sheer face. There was nowhere to go. And it really looked like, and I'd, got, I'd just made my way through a very difficult village with some very... Uh, disturbing people. <laughs> well, people are really uh, I'm going to really enjoy reading that part from the standpoint yeah. of realizing what Tibet really is like, the kind of people that are there, the kind of help you received, and the fact yeah. that the the guys in the blue uh, the blue uniforms, whatever you want to call them, the, uh, you know that danger was there all the time. And, and, and of course, you were promised that you, you were going to be looked after. And, yeah. And I think, uh, as I'm sitting here with my Tibet flag and my free Tibet, Tibet bump sticker. <laughs> you got it. And, and the Dalai Rama's <laughs> picture. Gather on that page, for sure. <laughs> yes. But, I mean, it, you know, the kind of courage you had was extraordinary. Uh, but you seem to have an enormous amount of that. You take, took a lot of chances. You could have just disappeared, uh, Ralph. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And who would have know. known? You never, you never walked in that area before, right? It wasn't your oh, neighborhood. No, no, it was. It's it, no, nobody had in many years. It's a very unknown part of Tibet. It still remains that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're gonna take a break on the top of the hour here with our guest Ralph White, co-founder of the New York's Open Center and author of *The Jeweled Highway* on the quest of uh, for a life of meaning. Well, uh, oh, well, I, I forgot to introduce us at this hour. This is 21st Century Radio. I'm the alleged Dr. Bob Hieronymus, a lowly Ph.D., hanging out in this part of the universe. And, of course, my boss is Laura Cortner, who pushes me around an awful lot, and Noah Dankner, who can bench press over 680 pounds. I taught him everything he ever knew. How do you like that one? And our guest is Ralph White, co-founder of New York's Open Center and author of The Jeweled Highway on the Quest for a me Life of Meaning, Divine Arts Media in 2015. Find it on the web at ralphwhite.net or click the link on the front page of 21stCenturyRadio.com. Now, what has it been like to see the holistic or consciousness movement move from the periphery to a place much closer to the mainstream of our culture? Well, it's been, I guess, you know, you'd say it's been very gratifying. 
um, it's been very validating. I mean, it, I don't want to say that it's been an easy journey. It hasn't been an easy journey to, to bring these things into the culture. But when you think of starting out all these years ago, 35, 40 years ago, uh, my own personal journey where I, there weren't, they, we didn't have centers in those days like uh, the Open Center or Omega Institute and so on. And um, people, uh, it was a lonely path. So it feels very uh, fulfilling to me to have provided uh, the means for many thousands of people to gain uh, fresh, more holistic insights into the nature of the world, into the nature of themselves, into the nature of well-being, health, the soul, the world, spiritual traditions, wherever it may be. Um, it's just been, it's been confirming, you know, that, that when I set out on that path, in my early 20s and left graduate school and so on, really not wondering if I was wondering if I was on the path to enlightenment or was I on the path to psychosis? Was there any difference between the two? Uh, it's a validation of just um, that decision to follow my heart, to follow my uh, quest for meaning, really, and to say, and that, that when I felt, look, I, I have to pursue these insights and awarenesses that have come to me down in the southwestern deserts, that was an accurate and correct feeling. Um, there was nothing in the outside culture that would have supported that, but I'm, I, I personally, it was such a powerful experience for me that I had no choice. But it felt like a lonely and dangerous and impoverishing path. And uh, so it feels like it, it was the right thing to do. So I feel, you know, I feel a certain sense of um, inner confirmation that uh, it was, became a meaningful journey, not just for me, but it's been beneficial to the lives of lots of other people, too. Yes, it's, you've, it's a vindication of what what you were aiming for, what you accomplished. And, and it helped everybody else, too. That was the great thing about it, Ralph. It wasn't yeah. just, it, this, you know, you, were, you had to do this. But actually, I, it's going to sound a little bit corny, and you can punch me in the nose uh, if it gets too corny. But, I mean, you took a hell of a lot of chances that I think most of us wouldn't have done. And thank heavens you did, because it just opened up that. And that key that you keep repeating throughout your book, which is, the meaning of life is really important, like uh, uh, logotherapy. I'm think, trying to think of Dr. Victor Frankl. Correct. Dr. Victor Frankl's uh, logotherapy. The meaning is really key to the existence of life. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, even positive psychology today would describe as meaning as one of the core ingredients of a happy life. That's right. That's right. You, you don't need four Cadillacs or... 12 Mercedes. Is that correct? You only need one? <laughs> I never even got one. But, well, you uh, didn't? Well, we'll yeah. send you one. We'll send you one. <laughs> we got plenty of those laid around here. Okay. Uh, but uh, so, but you've done a series of conferences on the Western esoteric tradition. Now, most people have no idea, at least many of the students that I remember from the, from the 60s and 70s and part of the 80s, didn't even know that there was a Western esoteric tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, you called it the esoteric quest that you uh, got involved in. Tell us a little bit about this, please. Yeah, well, you know, of course, having been deeply involved for decades now in running holistic centers, uh, I'm very aware that uh, people with these kinds of interests tend to be predominantly drawn to the Eastern path, Buddhism, yoga, etc., 
um, or to shamanism, and that's all well and good, and it's wonderful, and I support it. But for those of us who come from a European or a Western background or heritage, there's a whole other indigenous tradition there. I mean, I love the indigenous traditions of the Americas, but there's a European indigenous tradition of spirituality too, and that's what's called the Western esoteric tradition or the Western mystery tradition. And it's actually been an integral part of our Western culture. It, we have to, if we want to find it, we have to excavate. We have to dig. It's not on the surface. You know, I mean, the one good thing to come out of the Chinese invasion of Tibet has been the Tibetan diaspora. So you can find teachers and uh, lamas all over the world these days. But in the Western tradition, that has obviously this took place in the past a great deal. It's had to go underground. Many times it was oppressed by the Inquisition, or there were some political changes that forced this. Uh, worldview to uh, to disappear into some remote recesses of a country, um, but it's a beautiful, beautiful tradition that really begins all in many ways back in ancient Alexandria. It comes to some kind of focal point in in the Library of Alexandria, which is where we did one of our. Uh, esoteric quests. Actually, we did it in partnership with the Library of Alexandria, which oh, has been my. rebuilt wow. uh, on the Corniche in Alexandria. That was about five years ago, just when there was still an optimistic feeling in, uh, or maybe it was four years ago, in Egypt before the whole horrendous decline into the present condition in Egypt. So, you know, whether we go back there or the, the very first two conferences I did it on this theme were 20, 18, 20 years ago, um, were set in Bohemia. In fact, I did the, where is Bohemia? Does Bohemia really exist? Is it just the left bank of Paris or whatever, or Greenwich Village? No, there, I mean, there's a real Bohemia. The Bo, the, that is, it's the western portion of the Czech Republic. Czech Republic consists of Moravia and Bohemia. So Prague is the capital of Bohemia. And as I say in my book, I've always been a natural Bohemian. But what is it about Bohemia that is so special? Anybody, any of our listeners who has been to Prague will know that um, Prague has a sense of majesty and beauty and magic about it. The Hradshin Palace uh, overlooking the city, the Charles Bridge, the wonderful spires, the winding cobbled streets. There's a, there's a sense of magic and wonder uh, in Prague. And I think for many people, they go, wow, that's a beautiful city. And then they go on. But what interested me was, where did this come from? Why is it so beautiful? What is, why do we call Bohemians Bohemians? And um, I happened to stumble across in the very early 90s, right after the end of communism in Eastern Europe, a wonderful little town, a forgotten jewel, really, called Chesky Krumlov, uh, way in the Sumava Mountains of southern Bohemia. Came across it one night. I was with a friend. We'd been in Germany. We were driving in the darkness, really, not knowing anywhere. And we drove across. An old, we found this place. We drove across an old stone bridge under an archway, down winding cobbled streets. There wasn't a soul there. It was late at night, um, just dim yellow lighting. It was like, whoa, it had one of the strongest atmospheres I've ever encountered. It was very mysterious. And, um, and then suddenly we turned a corner, there was a wooden bridge, we started driving across the bridge, and there was a huge castle rising up from a river. Mm. And it's like, wow, where is this? What is this? And um, <clears throat> I wound up staying in a 16th century place that night, threw open the 
windows, the great casement windows in the walls that were six feet thick. There was the river below. In the di I could hear the birds singing. And there was a mysterious tower, which I later learned was an alchemical and hermetic tower rising above the town. When I went down for breakfast in the morning, there were red roses all around the breakfast room. Nobody could speak a word of English, but the friend I was traveling with uh, was German, so people could still speak German there because of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so she was able to translate, and I began to realize when I went up to the castle that I had stumbled across the southern Bohemian Mecca of alchemists, and that this place had been a major focal point in the 16th century or alchemists during this period known as the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, named that by the great historian Francis Yates. And uh, the, the man who owned it, uh, Willem, Count Willem Rosenberg, had actually been the protector of John Dee. I'm sure some of oh. our listeners remember oh. John Dee, the, the yeah. Elizabethan magus who was called in, uh, who constructed the horoscope for Queen Elizabeth's uh, coronation, Elizabeth I's coronation. Um, so it was a wonderful, mysterious world, and you know, and I, I, I just had the sense this is a historic place. We have to put it on the map again because the Czechs themselves, having gone through, you know, 60 years of communism and the Nazis before that, and the 300-year Habsburg Empire before that, were pretty disconnected. Not everybody, but of course, a lot of people from their own history, their own spiritual history. So eventually, I realized I was going to have to do it myself, and so. I decided I'm just going to create a, a t it's going to be a wild shot, a risk. It's going to be another huge risk. I just wrote to uh, everybody I admired who writes within the Western esoteric tradition and invited them, and every single person who was still teaching actually agreed to come. Oh, and it was one of the most uncanny things. And so we created this event. Gnosis Magazine called it an esoteric Woodstock. It was, uh, it was really one. It was a, a, an overwhelming, a peak, a massive peak experience for me to bring this whole world of hermetic philosophy, as you're saying. The people know the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus and its classic line, as above, so below, the profound connection between the inner and the outer world. Kabbalah, of course, Kabbalah is becoming much more popular these days, but it's an ancient uh, Tradition, and of course there was, there was a Christian Kabbalah as well as a Jewish Kabbalah and an is Islamic Muslim Kabbalah too uh, yeah. during this time. So uh, these esoteric traditions have gone on in many levels, and then there's the Neoplatonism, all the material that came over from Constantinople in the 15th century that was translated in Florence. And so these wonderful streams that understand that there's a divine spark that's within each individual and that our task is to, to uh, cultivate that ember to, so that the ember begins to glow and radiate. So that sense of the divine within and without in the world, it might not have been part of uh, so much of um, so many mainstream religious traditions, but it's been there, sometimes more hidden, sometimes more prevalent. Whenever it's come to the fore, uh, it has almost always created a golden age. And so this is what we have pursued with these esoteric quests. We have now done 11 of them. I just did the 11th one um, back in June. That one was called An Esoteric Quest in the South of France. Uh, troubadours, Cathars, and the Grail in medieval Languedoc. 
sure many of our listeners are familiar with the Cathars. So that was all about that whole world. And of course, people are not so aware that the troubadours and the Cathars were simultaneous, and there was a whole esoteric tradition going through the troubadours, the first people to bring romantic love into our world. But you know, considering the uh, the presentation by our uh, president uh, before this, it's worth remembering that. One of the way, one of the conferences that we did was an esoteric quest for the golden age of Andalusia. We did it in Granada, Spain, and most people don't realize that there was a 700-year period of Islamic Spain. It was called Al-Andalus, and it was a time, broadly speaking, not all the time, but there was a great deal of tolerance. It was called Conviviencia, Living Together, where Muslims, Christians, and Jews coexisted for 700 years in, uh, in, in Al-Andalus. And some of the wonderful aspects of Islam, the Sufism. Oh, um, yes. You know, Ibn Arabi, the greatest of all the Arabic Sufis, he's often considered the greatest teacher. Uh, Ibn Arabi came out of that world. In fact, he wrote a book in the 13th century called Sufis of Andalusia. And, uh, of course, we also need to remember that the most popular poet in America, Jalaluddin Rumi, popularized by Robert Bly and Coleman Barks, it was himself a major Islamic scholar. So it's a funny thing. Uh, people need to realize there's a beautiful dimension of Islam, Sufism as well, and that it goes, that that esoteric stream within Islam meets the esoteric streams within Judaism and within Christianity and in other religions and creates a kind of a golden spiritual thread. So this long conference series that we've done now for 20 years, we're going to be doing one next summer, in fact, next at the end of next August, um, it's going to be in Iceland. That's going to be an esoteric quest for the mysteries of the North in Iceland. It'll be the first time we'll enter into the whole world of Norse mythology. Uh, but, you know, I never imagined when I did this first conference in Chesky Krumlov in 1995 that it would turn into a 20-year and counting series. And I feel that there are enough hidden, forgotten eras um, that needs to be brought back alive as an integral part of our Western tradition. You know, I mean, some of the great figures of, in Western culture, of course, like Plato or Goethe in Germany, have understood that all of this, have been very attuned to these kind of deeper spiritual worldviews. And with that, we're going to take our pause here. Of course, you mentioned Gurdjieff and Uspensky a little earlier there. Wow, what, what a group here. Wow, what a book. What a book. Hello, everybody. This is Graham Nash. Right now, you're listening to 21st Century Radio with my friend, Dr. Bob Hieronymus. We need people that are putting the truth in front of our faces. We need leaders. We need great voices on the radio. Dr. Bob is one of them. Oh, my goodness. Our guest, of course, is Ralph White. He is the co-founder of New York's Open Center and author of Jeweled, The Jeweled Highway. And I said, oh, my goodness, because, you know, when I hear... That kind of sound from my uh, dear friend. Uh, um, yeah. How in the world could I forget his name? At the Graham Nash. My gosh. Now Graham Nash. Gosh, I hope uh, you could um, have Graham Nash on your show because you certainly are definitely one of those leaders in this particular uh, work in broadcasting. Uh, what what you are with um, WBAI, right? Uh, yes, it's been on WBAI, taking a bit of a break right now, but uh, yes, for about seven years or so, there was a show on WBAI. 
Well, it's, uh, it's really important to get this information out, as anyone can know. Now, gosh, I have too many questions, but I uh, am going to have to settle, f settle for one that's going to take a little while here, because this is about one of the most favorite, my favorite is people in the whole wide world. Um, you are a specialist in the work and wisdom of Rudolf Steiner, founder of Biodynamic Agriculture and Waldorf Schools, Let's talk about this great soul. <laughs> well, where should we get begin, Bob? I mean, he's uh, he. If you know, if you would ask yourself the question, who has left the greatest holistic legacy in the twentieth century? Yeah, if you true. recall the old biblical injunction, "By their fruit shall ye know them," then I don't think there's much of a competitor to uh, to Rudolf Steiner here. Most of us would be happy to just leave one of these things as a legacy. But uh, Steiner founded uh, the Waldorf approach to education, the Waldorf schools, sometimes called Steiner schools. When he died in 1925, there were only two of them worldwide. Now there are over a thousand. Um, they're growing, and I, and if any of our listeners saw that amazing article in the New Yorker about six or eight months ago about how Waldorf schools are catching on like wildfire in China itself where people are really desperate for a, a more creative approach to education. Apparently 200 have arisen in just in the last year or so. It's phenomenal. So Steiner gives us this Waldorf education, uh, a holistic approach to education for the child that educates the head, the heart, and the hands. Um, he's also the founder of biodynamic agriculture, which in many respects is the, the founding reemergence of organic agriculture in the 20th century. Um, Obviously, we had organic agriculture prior to that, but a group of farmers approached him uh, in, uh, right after the First World War and said, how do we renew agriculture? And he gave this beautiful series of lectures that has now led to biodynamic farms, vineyards, coffee plantations all over the world. Now, more and more, when you go into a wine store, they have biodynamic wines. It's, it's the most holistic, natural, sort of cosmic, organic approach to growing vines or grapes and then making wine that you could possibly imagine. It treats the farm as a, a complete entity, as a whole. So uh, those things alone, in addition to that, Steiner himself gave, um, it's, it, he gave 6,000 lectures over the course of 25 years, between 1900 or 1901 and 1925 when he died. None of them the same. They've been compiled into about 350 books. Not all of it has been translated yet. Uh, he, was, he was born in uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, died in Switzerland, created a whole center called the Goetheanum in honor of the great German writer and thinker Goethe, uh, that is in Switzerland. So, um, and this body of material, he wrote himself another 20 or 25 books, but this body of material is the greatest treasure trove of esoteric knowledge that we have in the 20th century. So whether you want to look up a 16th century alchemist, or whether you want to look more into Hypatia of Alexandria, the great woman philosopher and mathematician who was killed at the end of the Library of Alexandria, whoever it is, uh, you can go to uh, Rudolf, the Rudolf Steiner archive online if that's your approach. Put in the name, and it's amazing. Rudolf Steiner has something to say, and uh, not only something to say, but something profound to say about all of these um, these great figures. So he's a massive, 
He's a massively encyclopedic person, a, true, a truly brilliant individual who was brilliant intellectually, had a Ph.D. His early work in the 19th century was on epistemology. He really came out of the tradition of German idealistic philosophy. But he considered himself to be a spiritual scientist. He felt that bringing the scientific, the rigorous, objective scientific spirit to the inner world of soul and spirit was absolutely as necessary as the way we brought that same spirit to the outer sense perceptible world that we can see with our eyes and of course the subatomic as well. So I just think in general you'd say he's one of he's he's a he's kind of a a neglected genius. He's not neglected in the I mean the war the schools are proliferating, the biodynamic agriculture is proliferating, a lot of the finest wines, coffees, teas are now biodynamic. But in terms of the actual spiritual knowledge that he conveyed, his deep insight into, he personally felt that um, <clears throat> his most important role was to return to the contemporary world a correct and scrupulous understanding of karma and reincarnation. And so he gave all these words for my money. You know, I've listened to Noble Lama's discourse on the Tibetan Book of the Dead and so on. Um, for my money, uh, Rudolf Steiner has the deepest insight. You know, he considered himself a researcher a spiritual scientist. So he had, these are not just speculations. He felt he was actually able to research uh, these matters. But his material on the, what he calls the, the journey of the soul between death and rebirth is stunning, really. It's, it's, yeah. I've I read some of that material ten times, and it still speaks to me in a new way every time I approach it. So his, one of his more famous books is Knowledge of Higher Worlds. Oh. How do we know higher worlds? How do we attain it? So... He's just a comprehensive spiritual genius on the deepest esoteric level and also highly, highly practical. Today, the, the world leader in ethical banking, the Triodos Bank uh, in, uh, in Europe, was founded by uh, students of Rudolf Steiner in the, in the Netherlands um, 15 or 20 years ago, and now it's widespread. And, and that's, you know, when we think of what happened in the banking system here in 2008, this is impeccable ethical banking, and now there's this new worldwide movement of ethical banking. I could go on and on. You know, there's just a huge number. He, he just left a massive legacy that uh, there's so much there that can be absorbed, integrated, and then can lead to fresh initiatives in the future. So I just think that uh, that's one of the reasons I put the chapter in the book uh, I called it Meeting the Man on Heine Beach, Rudolf Steiner and the Return of the Mysteries, because I personally really encountered Steiner after hiking the Nepali coastline trail in Hawaii, on Kauai. So for me, that's where I really met his work. Obviously, I didn't meet him in person, but I met him in his work. So I just think he, I want, I think it's time for us to draw more attention to this brilliant, brilliant uh, figure. He didn't want to be put up on a pedestal. He didn't want to be considered a guru. He just said, consider me a spiritual friend. And like the Buddha, you know, and other great spiritual teachers, he said, just use, use the full resources of your intellect to examine everything that I say. Don't accept anything at face value. Subject everything to the, uh, the measure of truth. And um, as a matter of fact, you said that uh, he was a philosopher who made you feel whole. Yes, could that's you, right. Could you... He made me feel whole. That's right. What does that because, mean? What does that mean? Well, you know, when I was when I first came across, you know, philosophy uh, at university um, in the '60s in England, the apex of uh, philosophy was something called logical positivism oh. that I, hardly anybody today has ever even heard of. It's hard to believe that it was so. Um, 
well, it was considered so sophisticated in those days. There was a book called Language, Truth, and Logic. Um, but for me, it was it was an incre- it was all about minute linguistic semantic analysis. It had no soul. It had absolutely no quality of feeling to it. It was just about trying to resolve everything just through pure rational logic and through just through the evidence of the senses and trying to subject every sentence to the most meticulous analysis so that it even reached the point of absurdity where they would you could take or it could be <coughs> it could be the phrase what is the meaning of life that question if analyzed with sufficient semantic rigor these people would say or some of them would say that is a question that is a meaningless question it cannot be posed so it's as if philosophy in those days had reached a dead end. It was just like a dog chasing its tail. And so when I came across Steiner, I came across a true philosopher going back to the Greek sense of philosophy because the word philosophy, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, derives from Philos and Sophia to the Greek words love and wisdom. So a true philosopher, and certainly Plato and Aristotle and all of the other great Greek philosophers, they were true lovers of wisdom. Um, today, that is not the case. There's some people even argue for the fact that contemporary academic philosophy shouldn't even be called philosophy. It should be called ontics or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think there's a case for that. So, but Steiner came, he, you know, for me, I'm a, I've always been a deep feeling, a passionate person, as well as a you know, whatever intellectual orientation I have, too. So for me, in encountering Steiner's insights into the world, he had a beautiful, logical, rational, philosophical mind. Uh, He was capable of dealing with the biggest pictures, but he also had a tremendous sense of human feeling as well. And for me, that whole aspect of me as a deep-feeling person had felt completely excluded from uh, from serious philosophical consideration. So for me, it felt like here's a philosopher, a true lover of wisdom, actually engaging with the real world, the real world I inhabit both outwardly and inwardly. And, and of course, his, his life was, uh, there are times when it was just beautiful, and other times it was extremely uh, difficult. Uh, there, there were attempts on his life, uh, yeah, that's and, right. and uh, you know, he was one of the first that the Nazis were going after if they could have gotten a hold of him. Uh, and, and and the thing is, is that he was, uh, I think, the kind of person that I would have loved to have known about when I was in love with Bertrand Russell. Because mm-hmm. Bertrand Russell, <laughs> I had two gods in my life, demigods, you might call them. Mm. Lord Bertrand Russell. And uh, Henry Miller. Remember Henry Miller? Well, sure. Yeah. That's an interesting combo. Yeah, That is an interesting combo yeah. because cause from, from uh, Russell, I wasn't getting any emotional anything. And, yeah. uh, and with uh, Henry Miller, I got a full toast of uh, <laughs> that. But what was so strange was that 20 or so years later, when I pulled out, I think I have every book that Bertrand Russell ever wrote and, and almost everything that uh, Miller wrote. But I just started rereading them, and I realized how much I missed. How much, what I mean by missed, did not understand uh, these two uh, great people because they did have, later on, Russell did have more of a, a mystical experience. Uh, and, and, of course, Miller became, uh, uh, well, he always had mystical experiences in some ways, but he was 
a real delight to have that balance of those two. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure did uh, miss. Uh, I did. I was able to correspond with Bertrand Russell because mm. my teacher at that time told me, "Look, you're, Bob, you're really a philosopher. You're not an artist. So why don't you?" get in touch with Bertrand Russell, and I said, well, how in the hell do you do that? And he said, here, here's his address, he, and found out that my teacher was communicated with him weekly, which mm. was extraordinary. Uh, wow. That stand, yeah, so it was really quite thrilling from that standpoint. Well, they yeah. were two amazing beings, that's for sure. Yes, they, yeah. they were, yeah. And, I, and Henry Miller, even though most people... Uh, I I know most people probably read Black Spring or Tropic of Cancer and Tropic of Capricorn, but boy, his Oranges of Hieronymus Bosch, air-conditioned nightmare, things of that nature, really were something that kept me alive there for for quite a while. I'm sorry. because he moved from Paris to a big sir. That, yeah, that, well, we're yeah, I mean, Henry Miller, we've got the Big Sur, the Henry Miller little <laughs> library up there in Big Sur, not, not that far north of Esalen, and, and he was hanging out in the hot springs that became Esalen Institute way back in the 50s. Yeah, what a guy he was. Well, we got a break, our final break on 21st Century Radio with our guest, Ralph White, co-founder of, the New York's, of New York's Open Center and the author of the book we're talking about tonight, the jeweled highway on the quest for a life of meaning in my opinion there's nothing more important than meaning in one's life divine arts media find it on the web at ralphwhite.net or click on the link on the front page of 21stcenturyradio.com yeah this is Ziggy Marley saying love and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Eranimous one love ya well, this is one of the most interesting interviews, you know. Over the years, I've been doing interviews, but this one is very special. <laughs> I've forgotten where they are right now, but uh, we look forward to seeing him again. And, and if you are, Ziggy, we have put together your Christmas library of books. It's not just with Ziggy, but the Hendricks family and other, other rock and rollers that we've known uh, for such a long time. We send them libraries of books and guest what kind of the we just put a book called the jeweled highway in this for Ziggy Marley and his wife and uh, there that's going to be something for them when they take a look at that traveling wow. oh what would you say I'm sorry that I missed you what no I just said that's great Bob. well it serves you right you but they're not the only ones that's going to get a copy of your book so is the Hendricks people mm-hmm. uh, and uh, our dear friends that um, that created uh, the movies, the Lords of the Ring, Lord of the Rings, down there in New Zealand, <laughs> and we're looking forward. We're looking forward to them uh, reading this book, and of course, uh, we got to have those guys back. One, I really did. You enjoy the Hobbit series? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't enjoy the Hobbit as much as the Lord of the Rings. Well, but, I don't uh, think Lord any... of the Rings itself was yeah. just sensational. Wasn't it? Oh gosh, yeah. and. Um, you know, oh well, we better not get into that. I'm sorry, but I, I, Lord of the Rings. We back there in 1980s, with our beginning of our radio series, we were afraid, believe it or not, that J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit were going to be lost. We and we had no idea that anybody else was paying any attention to it, and it was such a thrill. Uh, to to see and experience what started in 2001 for for three straight Christmases, et cetera. Uh, it was just uh, elevating. It really was. It just made it fun to be alive. 
Well, Bob, could I mention that I think I'd mentioned a bit before that actually the Open Center is going to do the next of its esoteric quests in Iceland in August. And, you know, the Icelandic uh, sagas, uh, the Edda of, of Snorri Sturluson, the Finnish epic, the Kalevala, these were huge inspirations for... Uh, for Tolkien, and in fact, just reading this Icelandic material, it's mm. just amazing. Most of a huge number of the names from Lord of the Rings come from uh, the Icelandic Eggers, Edders, and Sagas. So uh, it's just an interesting phenomenon. If anybody, if anybody would like to explore that world of the northern mysteries that had such a powerful impact on Tolkien, you can see where so many of these stories of the Ring of Power and so on came from, mm -hmm. then they might think of coming to uh, Iceland with us next, uh, next, next August. Well, you know, this is a uh, little bit of synchronicity here because, you know, I was just moving into the direction to let's talk more about the Open Center in New York, and, and you already started that, but what other kind of programs does it offer to the general public now? Well, it, it covers a, a broad spectrum, really. You, you'd say there were five primary areas the Open Center deals with, uh, things pertaining to health and the body and wellness and so on, um, everything holistic and integrative in that regard, uh, matters pertaining to the psyche, to personal growth, human potential, depth psychology, and that area. Um, then when it comes to world spiritual traditions, we've offered multiple approaches. Can, you know, our, our watchwords, as I was saying earlier, are substance, depth, integrity. So um, we look for noble teachers within the different uh, spiritual and mystical lineages. Then the fourth area would be the arts and creativity. That's always been important to the Open Center uh, with people like Julia Cameron, you know, teaching her... Uh, artist's way and the subsequent forms of that that have come along so people can get in touch with the artist within. And then lastly, it would be the whole area of a social and ecological transformation, bringing these ideas out into the culture and, and doing what we can to transform the culture and bring it into a more healthy and sustainable direction. So I would say those are <clears throat> some of the, those, there are many programs, there are workshops, lectures, conferences, trainings, mobile more and more, the Open Center is doing these certificates. It's now a New York State-recognized school of holistic and professional studies that can offer certificates because as this material becomes more and more mainstream, people are looking for jobs and work in this area, too. It's not just a matter of uh, personal, spiritual, or psychological interest. Um, another major area that's a strong interest of mine um, is an area known that we call the art of dying. We just did back in the spring in April. We did the fifth of a series of conferences, uh, or the fifth conference, um, on the art of dying, spiritual, scientific, and practical approaches to living and dying. And in fact, we were just, we were just had, um, that was going on today. I was just at it yesterday with uh, Dr. Tony Bossis from the NYU psilocybin uh, cancer anxiety study. People may have read about it. Michael Pollan had a wonderful article in The New Yorker back in February or so. Uh, but it's a, it's a new way of working with people with intense death anxiety, stage four cancer patients. Uh, working with psilocybin uh, in a clinically controlled environment. This is all DEA, FDA approved, and they're finding remarkable results. They, at our Art of Dying conference in this spring, they delivered some of their first 
scientific results on the impact of this kind of therapy for people going through intense death anxiety. Um, other things to do with the doulas for the dying. You know, we think of doulas as people who help women and midwives during childbirth, but also it, there's a new phenomenon of doulas now for the people who are dying so that even in a hospice, people can be alone for the last five hours. And these people are trained. We've been training them for years at the Open Center now in, uh, in being present and in doing what we can to return a sense of sacredness to dying when it has been so medicalized in our culture. So that gives you some sense of the Open Center's activities. How can our listeners get in touch with the Open Center? I... Well, you can just go to the Open Center website, opencenter.org. Mm -hmm. um, I think you can sign up for a paper catalog there, so there's the catalog and the website. Uh, it's, it's in Midtown Manhattan. We were down in Soho uh, for many years on Spring Street, for those of us who uh, know New York. Uh, now we're in Midtown, not far from the Empire State Building at 30th and Madison. So you can certainly just come by or call the Open Center. And uh, I'll just give the number, 212-219-2527. It's, uh, and people will be happy to send you a catalog or let you know about what's going on. But it's, it's a non, you know, it, it goes all year round. It's really the only... Uh, it's the major holistic learning center, apart from the California Institute of Integral Studies, the major urban holistic learning center in America. So there are programs every weekend, every evening, and uh, abroad, too, as I was saying, with these uh, esoteric quests. So um, it's so, a comprehensive spectrum of holistic programs. So it would be opencenter.com? Uh, org, opencenter.org. Or sorry. people might be interested in that Icelandic journey. That's... That's esotericquest.org. So opencenter.org, esotericquest.org. Um, there's information about all of this material, both of those. And the number was 212? 212 212-219-2527. 212-219-2527. Yeah, 212-219-2527. Now, uh, I read a paper of yours which you wrote some years ago, looking deeper into Palin's beliefs. And uh, yeah. this was, uh, uh, we've had a lot to say about Miss Palin and oh, yeah. uh, her involvement. You know, it was so amazing when, when Obama was, was threatening to become president, uh, so to speak. Uh, when he, uh, he was being condemned so many times by the far right and the GOP, especially in regards to uh, a, a minister. I think it was Reverend Wright or something yeah, like that. Jeremiah yeah, Jeremiah Wright, yeah. And they, they just jumped all over him on that. And, you know, I was amazed that very few people, and the media especially, the media is complicit in many of this, much of the stupidity, of not looking into Palin's beliefs. Could you tell us about her <clears throat> beliefs? <clears throat> Yes, well, uh, through the Open Center, 10, well, you know, what was that? That was in uh, 2005, 10 years ago. Uh, I organized in partnership with uh, City University Graduate Center in New York a conference called Examining the Real Agenda of the Religious Far Right. So I brought in many of the leading uh, thinkers and presenters. I've never created a conference so rapidly. This was just something that was waiting to happen. But these were experts on the phenomenon known as dominionism and reconstructionism. 
So, you know, it, it, it's not only <laughs> Islam, should we say, that has a view, an apocalyptic view of a climactic end yeah. times, etc., an apocalypse. And it's, uh, you know, there are, there can be groups that really look upon uh, the book of Revelation, should we say, as a, ge- a geopolitical roadmap. I mean, this is very disturbing stuff yes, to, uh, to try to apply lessons from the Bible to contemporary politics. Um, it's, uh, it, anyway, so Sarah Palin's group, she, um, she's been part of uh, Alaska. Uh, the, it's called the New, Apo- the New Apostolic. Hmm, it's been a few years since I've not the new. It's um, Formation, Reformation. Yeah, the New Apostolic Reformation, yes, that's what it is. And it, it's, it comes from people really need to look into this. They need to look into what Ted Cruz's father's yeah. religious yeah. worldview is all about. I was very disturbed seeing some of our candidates for president um, appearing on stage with a guy who was calling for death for gays yeah. and this kind of thing. I mean, that, I mean, why is that not being called out? That's outrageous. Well, especially, uh, especially you know, these are Christians, in quotes. They're mm-hmm. Christians, in quotes. How can you be a Christian and not, and not and behave the way they're behaving? Yeah. The, the, and yeah. the philosophy that they're espousing, uh, which is hate. It's a, it's a hateful attitude, yes. yes. Some people and, and, feel that, you know, they're the chosen ones. And some people believe in the rapture, you know, that they will be brought up to the heavens and the rest of us will be left to, to suffer down here. These are bizarre, messianic, apocalyptic, dispensationalist beliefs. And um, something like uh, Christian Reconstructionism truly believes in biblical punishments for biblical crime. Yep. Um, and people have got to realize this isn't as, you know, those of us who live on the East Coast or the West Coast may not realize there's a whole world going on there. And, and it, has, it has some tentacles, should we say, into mainstream uh, U.S. politics. And it, people should really be conscious of this. There is a kind of strategy of stealth here there is, in terms yes. of wanting to do things under the wire and acting on actually the sort of willful, well, I was going to call it willful ignorance, but just, just the lack of interest, the lack of curiosity by the mainstream media to really look into this, because to think that well, somebody with Sarah Palin's worldview could have got us close to power is very disturbing. Indeed it is, and as a matter of fact, uh, it couldn't be more disturbing, as we will find out, because it is very strong. Uh, they think this is a Christian nation, which it is not, never founded as such, but that's what they're pushing, and anyone should be asked, all of their people should be asked, do you believe in separation of church and state? And I'll bet you they'll hide it. Thank you for joining us, Ralph. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington, and I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus. <laughs>